This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 7th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we've published three new articles that look at how well vaccines are working. Thus far, we've accumulated three different types of evidence that address protection by vaccine. What are those three types of evidence and how do they compare with one another? Steve, I'd say that there are kind of three tiers of evidence, each one of which has its own strengths. The earliest evidence was simply measuring immunogenicity. That's been done in a few ways. Several investigators have measured cell-mediated immunity by looking at various assays of T-cell activity. These have produced interesting results, though we still don't know how important cell-mediated immunity is in protection. More commonly, researchers have been looking at humoral immunity by measuring antibody responses. There are many different assays, but in general, they're designed to look either at antibody binding to the virus or to specific antigens, or the ability of antibody to neutralize virus and prevent infection. Although there's no standardization, these assays are fairly straightforward and they are by far the most commonly performed. All of these measures have a significant weakness though. We only have a rough idea at best at how well each assay correlates with protection. And what works for one vaccine might not work as well for another, as each might induce slightly different immune responses. That being said, these assays can be done very rapidly and on small numbers of individuals. That can be very helpful for at least making a good guess as to how protective a vaccine is likely to be against a new variant virus, as the data are available long before any clinical outcomes can be measured. The second type of evidence is efficacy measures in large clinical trials. Since these are generally derived from randomized clinical trials with placebo controls, the efficacy rates can be determined fairly precisely. And the larger the trial, the more accurate that number is. Of course, though, these are performed under ideal conditions, so they might not reflect what happens in the real world. For example, most vaccines are given as two doses, but a large number of people in many countries are not getting vaccinated according to the schedules used in these RCTs. So these numbers probably represent best case scenarios. Of course, the number that we really care about is real world effectiveness. This can tell us how well vaccines work when applied and give us a good idea of how they can be utilized as part of an integrated strategy to control the epidemic. These numbers can be derived in a variety of ways, generally from surveillance data or registries. Of course, the numbers that result are only as good as the underlying data, which is rarely of the same quality as an RCT, and of course, lacks placebo controls. Thus, effectiveness data is generally a useful but imprecise estimate. Eric, as you point out, data generation is complicated, imperfect, but urgently needed. Each of these types of data provide us different insights into the biology and provides us guidance as to the response. Overall, I can't help but look at macroscopic data. What I mean by that is if we look at how vaccines, for example, perform when given to large communities, be they countries or states or smaller communities, we overall see a substantial decrease in cases. And so it's difficult to not look at the overall impact of the large scale data. And it's hard not to recommend to just get vaccinated and to increase vaccination. However, each of these lines of evidence that you discuss provide us insights on how to improve the community response to the spread of COVID. 
the overall consideration is that vaccination has a profound impact on spread of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And we need to use all these different lines of evidence, however imperfect, to guide our response and to understand the variability of attack of this virus and its progeny. You know, I agree with you entirely, Lindsay, that the biggest measure of outcome is the community impact of vaccination. And we've seen in places with very high vaccination rates, we've seen the previously uncontrolled epidemic become controlled. The correlation with high rates of vaccination is very strong, and that's very persuasive. So why do we need all these other data? I think we need the more granular data to look forward. What's going to happen when we get new variants, for example? How effective are vaccines likely to be? And I think there's still a lot to learn there. But I absolutely agree. Vaccines are working, and we know that without running any numbers, just by looking at how much the rates of disease have dropped in places like the U.S., like Israel, where vaccination rates are very high. I agree, Eric. And I guess I wasn't implying that we've solved this problem. I think we need to use both macroscopic and microscopic data. And what I mean by microscopic are these granular data that provide us directive insight into how best to use these countermeasures in communities at risk, be they countries or individuals who have weakened immune systems or other cofactors of import. So all of these data are critically important. Unfortunately, they have intrinsic weaknesses that we as a community have to unravel to best understand how to move forward. So if we look at the articles we're publishing this week, we're going to be looking at two of the kinds of evidence that you've talked about. First, as you said, we've seen a good deal of in vitro data about virus neutralization. What more did we learn on that front this week? Certainly, one of the major variants of concern is the Delta virus, which is also known as B16172. This variant was first described in India, but is rapidly spread through the world, suggesting that it's more transmissible than some of the other variants. The study we published this week looked at Delta together with the closely related Kappa variant, which is also called B16171. We haven't discussed Kappa on these podcasts because its biological significance isn't so clear. It's important to remember that there are many variant viruses that have not caused widespread outbreaks and do not yet appear to be more transmissible than the original virus. In the study we published, the investigators used in vitro assays to measure the neutralization of the original variant, Delta and Kappa, using serum derived from three groups of patients. The first group consisted of serum derived from patients who recovered from COVID-19 infection. These were all patients who'd been infected in the US in the summer and fall of 2020, when the prevalent virus resembled the original virus recovered in Wuhan. The two other groups were people who had received either mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine, or BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. All the Sierra had reasonable titers against the wild-type virus, but most exhibited decreasing neutralization of Delta and Kappa. In general, antibody titers were higher in the vaccine recipients. All of the vaccine recipients had measurable neutralization of both variants. The same was true for the vast majority of convalescent individuals, though a few were unable to measurably neutralize either Kappa or Delta. In general, the decreased ability to neutralize the variant viruses had a similar magnitude in all individuals, suggesting that the quality of their antibody response was fairly similar, even if quantitatively they were different. 
let me reiterate the caveat that we say almost every week. We don't know precisely what these numbers mean. We think that higher titers are likely to correlate with higher levels of protection, but we don't know if there are absolute cutoffs. But these data appear consistent with what we already knew. Both convalescent and vaccinated individuals produce immune responses that have a reasonable ability to neutralize variant viruses, although at least these vaccines appear to induce higher levels of antibody protection. Eric, you point out the complexity of doing this type of work. Those individuals who provided the convalescent plasma in this study were infected likely with the original strain. Thus, their immune response may or may not be as protective as we hope, and we don't know. And so that as we do this work, we have to realize that the initial responses may not be the same through time when the virus itself changes. I agree that higher titers of antibody, we all believe and hope, suggest greater protection. But as you said, we don't know what is protective immunologically and whether it's all B cell or T cell, as we've just discussed before. But what is clear from this type of work is that as the virus changes and spreads, then we have to continually reassess how well our countermeasures work, be it in the laboratory immunologically and even more important clinically through disease manifestation. And this work is ongoing as these authors demonstrate for us, albeit imperfect in terms of what they were able to study, but incredibly helpful for it provides us some reassurance that vaccines as well as convalescent sera have some properties which neutralize the changing virus. Last week, we discussed an effectiveness study in a group of healthcare workers. And the remarkable part of that study was that there was regular testing of asymptomatic individuals. So the investigators could capture those with minimal or no symptoms. This week, we're looking at a similar study, but from a very different population. What did we learn here? This study comes from the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, which runs a unified system that supervises all incarcerated individuals in the state. The system offered vaccines, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, to all incarcerated individuals and staff. They then continued their routine surveillance, which included weekly PCR testing for everyone, regardless of their symptoms. Individuals who were symptomatic or tested positive were isolated for 10 days unless they had repeatedly negative testing. During a period from March until May, there were more than 4,500 individuals tested, more than half of whom received at least one dose of vaccine. Of those who were at least partially vaccinated, 27 had a positive test. 17 of these, including seven staff members, were fully vaccinated, while 10, who were all incarcerated, had received only a single dose. Of 11 individuals who were retested after a median of two days, nine were subsequently negative. All the cases were asymptomatic. These are more reassuring data. At a time when transmission rates were high and in a setting where COVID-19 easily passes among residents and staff, the vaccines seem to be effective at preventing both infection and disease. Of course, this study doesn't tell us anything about exposure, so there's no real way to derive rates. However, overall, it's very reassuring. Eric, I think these data provide another insight into the challenge of studying SARS-CoV-2 and its transmission. As you recall, when SARS-CoV was introduced on aircraft carriers, 
transmission in that closed environment was tremendous with upwards of a quarter of the crew becoming infected within days, suggesting something we all know just from our own community experience that this is a highly, highly transmissible respiratory virus. Now, how does that help us think through what we learn from the Rhode Island Department of Correction? We don't know how the correction officials or the inmates interacted, mingled, or potentially were exposed to virus from each other. Presumably, it's a closed community where the risk of transmission is extremely high. Based on this presumption, these data strongly suggest that despite an infection pressure which was likely high, transmission was low. And in those individuals who had detectable virus, there was a relatively short duration of viral presence, at least as detected by PCR testing. So these data are imperfect. They leave us with a lot of room for inference and confounding. But given the nature of the environment, these types of data do suggest that vaccination prevents transmission as well as infection in a closed community and provide more reassuring data about the potential effectiveness of vaccination. I think that these data also help us think about transmission and the importance of vaccination in closed communities. Early on, some states deprioritized some institutionalized populations, particularly prisoners, and there was a lot of transmission in prisons. I think that many states are catching up with this and there is improvement in these rates. However, as you said, Lindsay, the military, another place where people live at close quarters for extended periods of time, hasn't yet reached very high levels of vaccination, at least in some of the service branches. And this is another area which we really should be prioritizing in order to control disease. Remember that both prison populations and military populations exchange with the community. So they remain places that can continue to seed and create pockets of transmission. I mean, I think of both of these communities as representative of closed communities, but your point's well taken. They're not completely closed. They have intense interactions amongst their members, but there often are interactions with the community in general. But I extend this thinking to all of our relatively closed communities, such as nursing homes, chronic care facilities, and we need to think about how these types of data provide important guidance on how we can potentially provide protection to some of our most vulnerable communities, particularly as variants and other complications of COVID emerge. We've heard a good deal about the three vaccines that are being used in the United States, and we've heard a good deal too about Chad Ox one the vaccine that's being widely used in the United Kingdom and in parts of Europe and elsewhere in the world. Today, we learned about another vaccine, one of the inactivated vaccines. There are two inactivated vaccines being produced by Chinese manufacturers and widely distributed in many countries around the world. We've seen reports of early phase trials of these vaccines, but not yet any phase three efficacy data. Today, though, we published an article describing the effectiveness of one of them in Chile. What did we learn? Chile has made one of the Chinese vaccines, CoronaVac, the cornerstone of their vaccination program, although there has been increasing access to the Pfizer vaccine more recently. 
The study that we have looked at effectiveness using a database from the National Public Health Insurance Program, which covers more than three quarters of the Chilean population. The investigators looked at four outcomes, laboratory confirmed infection, hospitalization, admission to the ICU, and death, all related to COVID-19. For each outcome, they compared the hazard ratio for unvaccinated and vaccinated individuals and excluded the periods less than 13 days after each administration of the vaccine, as this vaccine is given in two doses, like most other vaccines. They had several ways to validate their results. Perhaps the most compelling is in their supplementary appendix, where they found that the Pfizer vaccine was more than 90% effective at preventing each outcome, a result that's consistent with most other similar studies. For CoronaVac, the investigators found that a single dose was only about 15% effective at preventing documented infection, though it did a better job of preventing more serious illness and death. A couple of weeks after the second dose, protection against infection rose to better than 65%. Again, the vaccine was more effective at preventing hospitalization, ICU admission, or death, with effectiveness rates ranged from 85 to 90%. The results were similar in older and younger individuals. During this time period, most of the virus was the original variant, though there was a fair amount of circulating alpha, or B117, and gamma, the P1 variant first described in Brazil. So what can we make of these results? I find them encouraging, but there are some areas of concern. Once again, vaccination, even with a less effective vaccine, provides very good protection against severe disease. That's the good news. But this vaccine seems to be less effective against some of the more distant variants. In fact, we're seeing a good deal of transmission of these variants in some countries, like the Seychelles, which have extensively employed these inactivated vaccines. So Eric, once again, these data are complex to interpret, which is intrinsic in real world data. It's not random who was vaccinated and who received which vaccine. And among the vaccine recipients, what their risk factors for exposure to COVID and its subsequent complications. We also are faced with which endpoints do we care about? Is it acquisition of COVID or severity of illness, such as hospitalization, ICU admission, death, and how well these can be assessed? So it's difficult, as you suggested, to compare these data with other data that have been generated for the other vaccines. However, these data suggest that CoronaVac may be less effective in preventing acquisition of COVID, but reasonably effective at preventing more serious illness. Though, as you point out, this does not provide insight into what to do as variants emerge and are transmitted, as the earlier work we discussed suggests that there may be decrease in the potency of the immune response elicited by different vaccines for different viral variants. So overall, complicated to interpret, encouraging, but needs to be thought about carefully in a changing landscape of transmission and infection. Lindsay, we've been looking at lots of in vitro neutralization data, and the relatively consistent message is that if you look at the more distantly related variants, you get less neutralization in the antibody assays. But the decrease in the ability of any vaccine to neutralize is actually fairly consistent from vaccine to vaccine. Of course, these are comparing different studies done at different times by different individuals, 
Nevertheless, it seems like there's some consistency. Of course, almost all the data we have are for vaccines that are directed against the spike protein. And these vaccines are exceptional because they're inactivated whole virion vaccines. So there are additional antibodies elicited against the nucleocapsid and perhaps other viral proteins. So it could be that the same rules don't apply to the inactivated vaccines. And I think we'll have to see. I mean, I think that's a really important point, Eric, that we have different vaccine delivery platforms, but also different vaccine antigens. And the inactivated vaccines provide a much broader array of antigens. The relevance of these to protection are unclear, and that is something that will require careful monitoring to better elucidate what protection is afforded by broad immune response against the whole virion, as opposed to targeted proteins that we think are the most important for protection. I guess this raises the sort of public health question. We have a lot of different vaccines. They have varying efficacy. We're not going to have enough of the highest efficacy vaccines for everyone in the world. So, Lindsay, when you think about strategies for employing vaccines of varying efficacies, are there ways that we can take the information that we know now about these individual agents and employ them in a way that would be maximally effective across populations? Remembering, of course, that all of them seem to protect against severe disease and death, which is perhaps the most important piece. So, Eric, there are a couple of implied considerations in your question. There are viral factors in terms of virulence and immune evasion, but there are also host factors in terms of who's at greatest risk for complication, death, viral amplification, and evolution such as in our immunocompromised patients. So I think as we better understand the host response and who's at risk for severe disease, I hope that we as a public health community think of strategies that deploy the proper vaccines for the communities that can most benefit, such as our seniors and our immunocompromised patients. But as we've discussed previously, it's not always straightforward how best to elicit protective immune responses in some of these populations. But as that gets better understood, then we need to look at these tools from a public health perspective as to how best can we deploy these tools globally, as well as in communities of particular risk. No, I guess for me, I think of vaccines, of course, as having two uses. One is to protect an individual, and the second is to protect the community. The very encouraging information out of a study like this is that there's very good protection for individuals, even by vaccines that are not producing as strong an immune response. Very few people get sick. Very few people die once they've received any vaccine. The benefit for the community, though, probably varies from vaccine to vaccine with the more efficacious vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, for example, preventing infection and therefore preventing onward transmission. So from a community level standpoint, in other words, protecting the unvaccinated or the people who can't get vaccinated or who don't respond to vaccination, those vaccines are better. But for protection of individuals, which is obviously most people's biggest concern when they go in for a vaccine, It seems like at this point, 
all of them are pretty good. Of course, that may be less true as more variants become more prevalent. Just one element I'll add to protecting both the individual and the community is preventing healthcare systems from being overwhelmed and how vaccines and these types of interventions can decrease and spread out the burden of illness so a hospital and other healthcare system structures don't collapse, as we've witnessed over the last 15 months across many different countries. I think that's a great point. We've seen what's happened in India. We've seen what's happening right now in Africa, where once again, oxygen supplies are running low in many countries. All of these vaccines prevent hospitalization and they therefore are less of a strain on resources. So it seems like all of them are useful from that standpoint as public health measures. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.